This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, we're talking about data, privacy, and digital assets with Sebastian Bergel of Hopper. Sebastian, welcome to Real Vision Crypto. Thanks, Ash, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you about topics that I'm quite passionate about, about privacy and the digital asset space. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you. Sebastian, before we get started talking about that, Tell us a little bit about your academic background. It's a very interesting one. So some people are surprised that when I say that I do not have a cryptography background, but you know, uh, crypto is one of the few fields that actually does not come out of university. So I guess it's quite normal. So my background is actually in microelectronics and uh, I did a PhD in postdoc here at ETH Zurich in Switzerland on microfabrication for biomedical applications. So we were basically using this ever faster evolving uh, microtechnology um, pipeline that uh, actually allows you to build really cheap devices for biomedical applications, for cancer research, for drug research on uh, human parasites and, and others. So yeah, that was quite interdisciplinary in my, in my education before I got into crypto. And for people who may not know, particularly for an American audience, ETH is one of the premier uh, science and engineering uh, universities in Switzerland. It's like 150 years old, established by the government to do basic analytic research uh, on these fields. So obviously it's a, it's a very impressive background and it's, it's also a fascinating theme that I think we see here in crypto. Uh, people with advanced degrees in very sophisticated science and math related subjects. So tell us the story about your transition uh, from doing that into crypto. Oh yeah. Um, so I got exposed originally to Bitcoin in late 2013. There was this bull market of late 2013 when everybody thought it's too late, you know, and then like this really brutal crash of 2014. So then, you know, I thought I would be a good trader, but it turned out it was just the bull market and I was in fact a pretty bad trader. And then I pretty much forgot about, um, about this whole crypto stuff for about a year until one of my friends uh, made me aware of this other system that was coming up there, which is called Ethereum. And since I've always been a coder, like since I was a teenager, I was basically coding on a daily basis. Um, Ethereum was quite interesting because you could not just move money left, right, but you could actually code money. And that was really something that, that really hit me. And that was really, really surprising to me. So I tried to play around with this thing called Ethereum. It was very messy. Nothing really worked, literally nothing. And um, yeah, then I was so frustrated, but luckily there was a conference that was called Ethereum DEFCON 1, which coincidentally happened uh, the week after I defended my PhD. 
So, you know, I would be free to go to London and hang out with these people like there would be Christian Reitwiesner, the developer of Solidity, where I could ask, you know, why does the compiler just say error to me? So, and then people got back to me and said, well, Sebastian, like, at least it says error now. Like a week ago, it didn't even say that. So it was very early in the space, but it was also very clear to me that at this moment in, that was in, in late 2015, that this would be the magic moment I'd been waiting for. I always thought, you know, when dot-com times hit me growing up in Germany, um, I was just not really deeply exposed to it. And I always thought if something like this comes around, I'm going to drop everything and going to jump right in. And to me, being at DEF CON 1, uh, seeing all these great people talk about the visions of Ethereum, it was very clear to me that that would be that magic moment. It would be this new technology that would change everything that we know. So when you said when something like this comes around, what was it that you saw? What was it that was so compelling to you about this technology? Other than the letters ETH, I guess, from your university. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit weird, but I can pinpoint it to one line of code that really got me. And there was this one line of code, which basically allowed you to store money in this variable in a smart contract and the smart contract would be managing that money and only give it back to you if it was programmed to do so. And like, that was so fundamentally new to me. That was so fundamentally weird that it was like, it, it was really my, my magic moment um, when I realized, okay, you can really not just program stuff that is, you know, random technology that shows you a color, a picture, some text, some numbers, but you could code money. You could really like instruct a smart contract to move assets around. And that was, that was so different. And that was so profound to me that I decided I get, this is really something significant that is worth educating myself much more about it and trying to get much deeper involved in this space. Yeah. It's fascinating that a single line of code was what captivated you and really changed the course of your entire life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I still remember I tried initially, I tried to bring in this kind of weird uh, part of the, of this crypto um, into my academic research. And because, you know, there, there was a hackathon in late 2015 where I built actually a lab book that was based on top of IPFS and Ethereum. I tried to talk to my professor about it. He uh, told me to keep these rather esoteric things, maybe rather as a hobby instead of bringing it into research. So it really kind of gave you a feeling for, you know, how, um, how, how this crypto asset stuff was seen back then in 2015. So, you know, I ultimately had to decide back, like by the time I had a postdoc position, there were three PhD students working with me and I decided I had to quit it all. That's the only way I could really you know, get where my passion is and get deep into crypto. So talk to us about the transition to Hopper. What was the need that you identified? What was the compelling use case that you saw that you felt you needed to bring into the world? Yeah, so there's there's quite a big gap between when I started uh, going all in in late 2015 and when we started Hopper really full time uh, in early 2020. So in the meantime, you know, in, in late 2015, people started talking about all these crazy applications, like one of them being the DAO, which was being talked about since like, uh, I guess, mid 2015. And 
I thought, you know, that back then it was too early. It was too early to build a product. So instead, um, I was starting to work as an educator. So initially, we, we were the first ones in continental Europe to give workshops on decentralized technologies like Ethereum and like other blockchains, teach people why that is an amazing technology, what smart contracts would be. And then uh, we would be asked to build actually something that was initially pretty weird. We were asked to code tokens and token sales. So that was when this uh, ICO wave in 2017 hit us real hard. So we would then pivot from pure education to kind of software development services. So we would be the first, I would say, in professional capacity, um, like developers of smart contract systems here in Europe. And uh, that was quite interesting because we got to, you know, basically I'm, I'm saying we, we tokenized basically everything that you can think of and um, built tokenization engines and stuff like that and started building truly decentralized applications. And that is pretty interesting because there would be, you know, most people came to us because they wanted a token and an ICO and they wanted it like within, they needed that stuff by tomorrow because they wanted to raise millions of dollars. That would be the standard theme. But there would be a few people who were actually interested in building truly decentralized applications. Sebastian, for people who are not computer scientists, what does that mean? What's the significance of a truly decentralized application? And how does it differ from Web 2.0 that we know today? Yeah, that, that's a great question, actually, right? Because if you look at an application like a decentralized finance application like Aave or, or some other applications, you might think, hey, that's just a web app, just like Bank of America is a web app, right? But the, uh, the, the crucial thing is that you are always in control, right? So nobody can take your money away from you and you can be in full control of all the angles of these applications. That's what makes a truly decentralized application. There's no single point of failure where somebody can unilaterally decide to, you know, that your bank account is now zero, right? Or your funds are frozen or anything like that. So basically empowering the individual to be in full control of their money, their data, or like whatever it is that, that is uh, what, what the app does, that is the uh, characteristic of a true decentralized application, empowering the individual. Yeah, very well said. So you have these uh, individuals who come to you and say, we are really passionate about building truly decentralized application. And what does that spark in you? And what do you start thinking about the next steps? So we, we did exactly that, right? So one first, one first project that we really tried to embark on was actually a decentralized dating app. So imagine like a, a privacy first dating app, like maybe it's a little bit a silly idea, retrospectively it totally was, but it sparked off the idea of Hopper. So if you build a decentralized dating app, you want to be in full control, maybe for good reasons of, you know, all the data that goes through your dating service that you're consuming there. And well, the first thing that it sparked in me was, well, that should work, right? Let's make it happen. Let's build it. And as you start that, you soon realize that a lot of the fundamental building blocks that you as an engineer need are not there yet. And, you know, when you look at blockchains, a bunch of them are there. It's also important to highlight, right? So when it comes to like settling money in a decentralized fashion, that works relatively well, I would say. 
If it comes to, when it comes to storage, there's also people working on decentralized storage solutions. And that's great, right? If you think about a traditional application and you want to build it in a decentralized fashion, such that, you know, you and me can be in full control of our data, um, that we have self custody of not just money, but also data, then, you know, storage is great. But one thing that is not solved and that we saw as the biggest missing puzzle piece was the transmission of data from A to B. So when our, let's call the character Alice meets her, you know, um, date Bob, how do Alice and Bob actually exchange chat messages with one another without any third parties out there being able to peek on them without any third party knowing that they exchange data? There was simply no good solution out there that we could go to and use in this application. And that was really what gave rise to us uh, seeing that we do need a solution that allows for the private exchange of data for the web and web three. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So give us a sense of how you then go about building that, uh, what the values and goals were for this project. So basically, if you look at this, if you look at it from a perspective of goals of this Web3 movement, as I would call it, of self-custody of money and data, then you need to build this solution in a way that really respects that. And if you really want to empower the individual, you need decentralization, but you also need privacy. So we decided to go full on privacy first, right? So what we, what we decided to do is first check out some other solutions that are out there, right? So most of the listeners here have heard about VPNs. Right, virtual private networks that you might install on your on your laptop or on your mobile phone. For example, if you want to access like confidential like company resources, these are very often used by individuals to create a kind of a virtual tunnel uh, so that they can use public Wi-Fi networks without the risk of packets or data being snooped by third parties. Exactly, that's a that's a great example, right? So you use it for privacy as well as for security considerations. You use a VPN. But the thing with the VPN is you do need to trust some provider, right? So there's a single party that now has access to your entire browsing history, to all the apps that you're running on your mobile device, for example, and to every single contact that you're making through the internet connection of your mobile. So, you know, that is pretty much at odds with the goals of Web3 being self-custody and being in control of my own data. So it had to be a better solution than that. And we kept looking around, right? There's something that, that also some of the listeners might be familiar with, which is called Tor, right? So Tor is unfortunately many times um, equated to dark web. It's not just that, it's basically technology that allows the private transfer of data. However, what most people do not know is Tor is also fundamentally very centralistic. There is a so-called directory authority who is basically telling who is allowed to play along with this network and who is not. So again, this is pretty much at odds with the goals of the Web3 
And so we kept going further back in history of the web, actually. And it turns out there's something that was invented over 30 years ago, which is called a mixnet. It is basically a network of computers that are relaying data packets to one another and obfuscate thereby who is exchanging data with who. So it provides privacy for both senders and recipients of data. And that is then the fundamental technology that we looked at after doing a decent amount of initial R&D that we settled on to use and build out for Hopper. So give us a sense, Sebastian, of what the use cases are for this. In other words, uh, what do you see the world looking like uh, where this technology becomes integral uh, to users, uh, business users, uh, users for personal use? What's the framework that this uh, evolves into in terms of how it gets used? So I really see Hopper being a fundamental infrastructure piece. So I do not think that, you know, there will be a Hopper app and you will use this Hopper app directly as a user. I do see it as a pretty fundamental piece of privacy infrastructure that other applications run on top of. And what that means is that applications that demand privacy um, would all leverage such a solution. And like one thing that makes sense to me very much coming from this digital asset space is really your crypto wallet. Imagine a Bitcoin wallet and Ethereum wallet, like whatever crypto asset you're interested in. Your internet service provider knows what you're doing. And a lot of other, especially for-profit organizations, also do learn what you're doing there. So that is actually pretty broken fundamentally, right? Because why would your internet service provider and a whole bunch of other um, providers that mostly happen to sit in North America, such as Google or Cloudflare, learn about the fact that I'm currently sending ETH around. That doesn't make sense, right? So that is one use case where we do need, as we call it, transport level privacy. When I transport data from my wallet to a node, that is something that should be kept private. Beyond that, I see a lot of interesting use cases in the domain of med tech. So medical technologies have a pretty big challenge. And that is, if you want to bring digitalization to medical technologies, you have to like gap from a hospital setting, which is highly regulated, to in a modern IT world, a cloud, right? Now, a cloud is largely unregulated, so you have to cross organizational and regulatory boundaries. And that is something that Hopper allows you to do, right? By basically shielding the sender from the recipient of the data packets, you can effectively cross organizational and regulatory boundaries for sending data packets around. And that is something that a mixnet like Hopper enables. So you mentioned regulatory boundaries. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the risks here that you foresee to the business model. Uh, so obviously governments, law enforcement agencies uh, have some trepidation about the level of anonymity that you're talking about here. Uh, anonymity is secured uh, not by trust in organizations, but by the immutable laws of mathematics and physics. What are your thoughts uh, about how it fits into the existing legal regulatory framework that we now have in North America, in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So if we think about anonymity, we think about, you know, bad stuff happening on a dark web. And that is true, right? There's a lot of bad stuff that shouldn't happen and it needs to be stopped, right? So law enforcement 
needs some way of, of intercepting and, and stopping bad players. But at the same time, it is the goal of the regulator to protect the people. And we see, especially recently, a large amount of regulations that are made with exactly that in mind. In the US, you have HIPAA or CCPA. In Europe, we have this regulatory framework called GDPR that basically aim at protecting the individual from the overarching power and data harvesting power of large multinational IT corporations. If they're called Facebook or Google or Cloudflare, it's basically all alike, right? So you have for-profit corporations that are harvesting data about us as individuals and are making money off that. So that is something that the regulator wants to fix. Now, how does the regulator want to fix it? They try to take this broken underlying system that's called the Web2, and they put this large amount of, of regulation on top of it, hoping that things will work out. We are trying to go about it the other way around. We're re-architecting the web as it works today by bringing privacy-respecting technologies into the picture. Because if you have something that can be built in a fundamentally privacy-respecting way, then you don't need to try to retrospectively fix it with regulations. So I would say, while there are challenges, I think we are very much aligned with the goal of the regulator to protect the individual from the data harvesting powers of the IT powers of the world. Yeah. Well, you know, you said it right there. This really is about re-engineering the basic fundamental architecture of the web itself. Yes, absolutely. So the interesting thing is, you know, when the internet, when the internet came about, it was actually initially a decentralized place, right? So people thought that, you know, if you wanted to have your own website, you would run a web server. If you wanted to have email, you would run your email server. Well, what happened then? Well, people were unfortunately a bit too lazy to actually run a web server and an email server. So Gmail came about, right? And Facebook came about. So we have these platforms, which became the central hub to exchange data, but also to harvest data. And now what the Web3 does is it tries to decentralize the web again. And how do we do that? By basically giving power back to the individual, but now not just giving it back to them, but incentivizing them. So incentivizations have obviously worked real well for the web, right? If you look at the valuations of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the like, you'll see that, you know, that worked pretty well. It did not work so well for the individual user. So web, the Web3 movement tries to bring power back to the individual user and bringing the incentive models that worked really well in the Web2 world, but let the individual participate and profit from that. That's how I would summarize it. It's so fascinating. It's such, it's such an incredibly interesting evolution. I mean, those initial decentralized uh, days uh, of the earlier web, uh, as you say, were more decentralized, but they also came with you know, pretty significant burdens in terms of the time and energy required uh, to spin up some of these services. Uh, those of us of a certain generation will remember, uh, you know, hey, there's no email, go, go tell Bob the email server is down, right? Um, the web server is down. The ability of 
businesses particularly, uh, as well as individuals and other organizations to spin these off in the cloud has been a tremendous boon to the creation uh, of new businesses, services, ideas, uh, organizations of all different stripes for profit and not for profit. But as you say, simultaneously, it creates this uh, structure where this centralization uh, of all of those services happens uh, to a few companies uh, in a very small area on a map in Northern California, Washington, uh, and other places in the Pacific Northwest. It really is an interesting situation to see how this just continues to evolve and grow and, uh, and, and change in a way that, uh, that now we start to look at some of the values, some of the trade-offs, and some of the compromises that built up this round of the web. I think there is a solution to get out of this dilemma, right? And I think the solution is that, of course, not everybody needs to run their own email server, right? So my parents would probably not get access to email if they would have to run their own email server. But what we're doing here, and what I'm saying now is, is not just theory, it, it runs actually in production today. We can run decentralized networks that have hundreds of billions of dollars that they're protecting. And we can basically incentivize other people to protect them. One example is, for example, the Bitcoin network, right? Or the Ethereum network. In these networks, you have operators who are basically running computers and earning money for doing so, so that all of us can use them to transfer money, to get access to data, or as is the case in Hopper, to relay data and create privacy for sender and recipients of data packets. So effectively what we see here, it's not about necessarily you running your own machine, but it's about providing the ability, not just for the Amazons and the Googles of the world to run infrastructure, but to anybody out there who's technically capable and who is interested in earning money for doing so, right? So this is something that I find really interesting. It's the Web3 movement is about a democratization of access to infrastructure. You can run your own machine like I can run my own machine, right? And nobody can mess with that. Nobody can take this right away from us. That is something that I find very profound. So let's talk a little bit about this incentivization. Obviously, the, the current round has done a great job of incentivizing the shareholders of Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Talk to me a little bit about what that looks like in practice. Uh, you mentioned that your mom, my mom, probably wouldn't have email if they had to run a, their own server. So how is it going to work where you have individuals uh, who maybe are not so technically sophisticated who are going to be able to benefit from the incentivization of the new Web 3.0 architecture? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And first of all, I have to highlight, we're not all the way there yet, right? So this vision of this Web 3, we didn't build it out all the way. But effectively, what I see is you are running a, you know, maybe a mobile application that doesn't run, look any different from the mobile application that you're used to today. Let's take social media as an example, right? So there will be Web3 social media applications that run just in the same way as social media applications run today. But instead of having a Twitter or a Facebook running behind the scenes, which control everything, you have a network of individuals which cannot cheat and provide fake data, but which are running the services which are required so that all of us can participate in it. And then on your mobile, what needs to happen is that you need to validate that the data that you have been provided with is, you know, not fake. And there's some basic and pretty uh, profound amounts of cryptography at play here that allow your mobile phone 
to make sure that the data that you have been delivered are actually correct, right? So to ensure data integrity. And from that moment on, you can have like your your own, you know, whatever whatever you might want to build, your social media application, your chat application, your digital finance application, what, whatever you want to build on top of such, in, such infrastructure. And we do see this at play right now, right? So we do see in, let's take an, an example um, of, of, you know, somebody who was also on the show here. Let's take Ave, for example, right? In case of Ave, like you have this network of uh, a lending market for money, right? So you can basically get interest on stable tokens. Now, this has to run somehow, right? So somebody has to do some, some job behind the scenes there of providing money and, and you know, borrowing money and, and ensuring that this marketplace is actually alive. Why does that work? Well, that works because the in incentives for all sorts of players to participate in this marketplace. Again, democratizing the marketplace. This marketplace of decentralized finance is not just available for the banks of America of this world, but for you and me. So you and me can play with the same financial rails as the real big players. That is not something that was possible before the advent of decentralized finance and crypto applications. Yeah, it's so interesting. You talk about this as an architectural framework, uh, perhaps in ways that others do not. Very often you hear people talking about them uh, as end user applications, but it sounds like your thinking is thinking about this as a, as a back end architecture, uh, services that get provided uh, in a way that uh, creates this uh, openness that allows applications uh, from users uh, to basically participate in this architecture that has a very different fundamental construct uh, of how the world works, how things are incentivized, secured, uh, and executed. Absolutely, yes. It's all about ensuring that you and I can participate in you know some incentivized networks which so far was only accessible to really large players i'll give another example and um, now we're going a little bit like more to decentralized finance and, and coming off the data track but like we see these applications for data for finance um, it's just happens so that finance is the most advanced um, so, for example, we have a very sophisticated set of market makers that are driving, you know, the, the financial markets that we have on this planet. And to be a market maker, there is something that requires an upfront capital that is easily north of tens of millions of dollars, right? Because otherwise you would just be too small to matter. You would just not have the teams and, uh, you know, regulatory burden couldn't take the regulatory burden that's required to enter this game. When we look at decentralized finance applications, you can be a market maker on marketplaces such as Aave or Uniswap, to just name two, where you can participate with, you know, maybe a thousand bucks, right? You can play a market maker on the exact same rails that are used by the really big players in this market. And this is something, again, that I found absolutely phenomenal. With a little bit of code, and again, I understand this is technical, but it's not much, right? With a little bit of code and understanding of what is going on there, you are able to participate in the really big infrastructure games that you were so far completely excluded from. Can you give us an example of what that looks like and what that means for non-technical people? Absolutely. So imagine, for example, that you wanted to, to stay in the finance example, imagine that you wanted to um, provide liquidity on a marketplace where you can trade 
ETH versus US dollar. So if you wanted to trade Ether versus US dollar. So what you would do is you would just get yourself, for example, a thousand bucks worth of ETH and US dollar, and you would provide that to this marketplace, for example, called Uniswap. Your capital is locked there for other people to trade against, right? So that's what it means to provide liquidity. Other people can trade against that liquidity that you provide there. In exchange, you earn trading fees. And you earning trading fees is, again, the cut that normally a bank, a broker, and a market maker behind the scenes would somehow, uh, would, would somehow share. We should probably say for, for, for people who are relatively new to this and still trying to get their heads around it, these liquidity pools that you're describing now, like Uniswap or SushiSwap, effectively uh, are, are performing a function in a decentralized way that a traditional order book uh, that matches buyers and sellers at different bids or asks. The unique thing, and maybe this is just my sort of oversimplified way of looking at it, but when I think about liquidity pools, I think about uh, basically a trade-off here between the speed of execution that you see in a traditional uh, limit order book on the one hand versus the ability to do something we've never been able to do before, which is to take money and lock it in smart contracts. So if you can lock liquidity on two sides of a trade, you effectively can provide liquidity for people uh, who who want to trade in those assets. Is that is that roughly the way that you think about it? Yes, it is. I would I would add one disclaimer, and that is that these automated market makers that you just described are pretty crude, admittedly, right? Yeah. So. There is fair criticism in saying that, well, but the efficiency of a traditional market maker are just higher. Well, point taken, but at the, po at the same time, we're iterating real fast here, right? So Uniswap came about, you know, not even three years ago and evolved to something that is trading, you know, billions of dollars worth of money every single day. There is zero fakes behind that. The amount of money that's being traded there is 100% correct, and you can account for every single transaction there, basically for free, right? Imagine about the reporting, the amount of reporting infrastructure that you have behind the scenes on the New York Stock Exchange. All of that stuff is provided out of the box here because we have inherently transparent systems that is, again, run by anybody out there who wants to participate. Yeah, and you can't do things like spoofing orders uh, where you you know put in orders, cancel them, and, and then attempt to manipulate the price with it when you have these contracts that are locked. Yeah, exactly. So there's, I mean, there, there are some very interesting kind of attack scenarios uh, that, that, that we see being played out here right now. So there's this so-called minor extractable value or maximally extractable value that's kind of interesting, right? Because when you submit a transaction to such a decentralized order book, it it has to get there somehow, right? And while it's in transit, other people can observe what you're doing. And when you do really large trades there, that is something that people can extract value of. And that is the point, and now I'm circling back to our original starting point of privacy, where we say, well, maybe this decentralized uh, trading infrastructure needs a level of privacy that we don't have yet. Because if you submit your order you know, and Ash sees it because Ash, unfortunately, uh, is sitting right next to the server to which you submitted it, then, you know, he might front run you to just pick a very blunt example. So we think that decentralized trading infrastructure at global scale, especially when we have institutional players coming in, needs institutional data privacy protection. And that is some of the things that we're trying to achieve with Hopper. And you asked me before, what sort of use cases we would see. 
Well, I would expect if we see institutional traders that are interfacing decentralized finance infrastructure, which is inevitable given the liquidity that we're seeing there and the small amounts that are extracted. So if we see these players coming in, then we do need to comply with their compliance requirements and their requirements uh, in terms of data privacy. And that's what I hope Hopper can provide on the fundamental level. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Connect for me, if you could, uh, front-running with MEV. These are two terms that people have heard probably in very different domains. Can you explain the connection between them? Imagine you have an automated market maker um, decentralized exchange. For example, Uniswap. It's the biggest one out there, right? Um, or Curve Finance. So in, uh, in a, for, for example, if you were to buy yourself, um, you know, $10 million worth of Hopper token, for example, right? You would move the market. If you're moving the market and I know your order is coming in, I might say, hey, you know, if you're trading $10 million of this token, I might want to jump in first, right? Because I still get a low price. And then I see that, you know, your big order is going through and I could sell again and book a profit in between. So buy ahead of a purchase, sell ahead of a sale. Exactly. I try to jump in right before this big order that I know is going to come in, right? And this this is front running. Now, front running is something that is not um, specific to decentralized finance. We've seen front running in traditional markets for decades. And again, how do we try to combat it in traditional markets? By regulation, right? And unfortunately, regulation can come in a little bit heavy handed. It doesn't really solve the fundamental issue. Michael Lewis' book, Flash Boys, is all about this technological kind of arms race uh, that high-frequency traders do to precisely uh, facilitate the kind of uh, front-running that you're talking about. Absolutely. So Flash Boys is a, it's a fantastic story, and that's why the, uh, the title of actually um, this MEV research was actually Flash Boys 2.0, right? So now, what is, what is this MEV? So MEV is basically the, uh, the automation of trying to improve or, or trying this front running. You cannot just front run. You can, in an, in an ideal scenario, when you have like a really big order coming in, you could actually sandwich this attack, right? So you could put one trade right before your really big buy and one right behind it. So you effectively sandwich this target transaction. And there's people out there who wrote bots for that, right? Who are seeing these transactions which are pending while they're in transfer, there's also called a mempool, a pool in which the pending transactions are sitting. They're observing that and they're seeing, hey, this one I can like front run and back run, I sandwich him and therefore extract value. And yeah, that's something that is that came out of nowhere and grew to a billion dollar value that has been almost a billion dollar that has been extracted over, extracted over the course of 2021. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge amount of research that um, only started little over a year ago and led to this you know, billion dollar value that did get extracted this way. And now again, uh, following the topic of democratization of infrastructure, the current research focuses on how can we try to either avoid it? And if we can't avoid it, we have to democratize the access to it. Because if we make this extractable value available to as many people as possible, we will reduce it because there's competition, right? So that is something that I found really interesting to see that by giving 
as many people as possible the ability to participate in this um, in this game you're making it better for everyone and one exchange that really took this all the way is called CalSwap right so if you go on CalSwap you're effectively saying this is my intent what I want to trade now you all are doing whatever games you can come up with to that yields me the best price and the one who submits the best bid will get to execute that order. So it's, it's really interesting to see what people came up with here uh, in really short time to optimize the efficiency of markets. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, it really is a fascinating, fascinating thing to watch. You mentioned uh, in passing the Hopper token. Tell us a little bit about the Hopper token what it's used for and how it participates in this network. Sure. So fundamentally, the Hopper network provides relaying of data packets that hop through the network and thereby provide privacy for both sender and recipient of data packets. Now, what we bring uniquely to the table here, and that's our core invention at Hopper, is what we call a proof of relay. So if you can prove to others that you have relayed a data packet, you get paid for that service in a Hopper token. It's kind of similar if you're protecting the Bitcoin network by mining a block, then you know you get rewarded in Bitcoin. So although it's not computationally as intensive, it is actually having a real utility and it is providing privacy for sender and recipients of data packets. So that is what the Hopper token is used for. So if you run a Hopper node, you stake this Hopper token, by staking token, you're entitled to relay traffic. And for doing so, you get paid in a Hopper token. And the third, the third feature is we use the Hopper token for governance of the system. So we have governance decisions, which you can participate in through the Hopper token. So I know this is getting a little bit down in the weeds uh, with the technology, but tell us a little bit about these packets. Are these like the fundamental atomic units, TCP IP data packets that you're doing this on? Or is this uh, a higher abstraction layer that you've built on top of TCP IP? So it's indeed a higher level of, of abstraction that we choose here. So basically Hopper is an overlay infrastructure. Hopper is an overlay network that works on top of today's internet, right? So you still have the same underlying technology through which you're then sending packets that are hopping around and thereby obfuscating who sent data to whom. So what happens in this mixnet of Hopper, where you know, you're not just relaying a packet right away, you're caching a bunch of packets, you're modifying them, so they look a little bit different when they come out and you mix them up. That's why it's called a mixnet. And every node that does that has a bunch of traffic that goes through them. And these packets that we, uh, that we use there are having a packet format that make it really, really hard for anybody to learn anything about it. In fact, even if you run a Hopper node yourself, you cannot find out if you were actually receiving the packet from a sender or just another intermediate relayer. And you also don't know if you're sending it to the recipient or if you're sending it to another intermediate relayer. 
So nobody knows, you know, who sends what traffic through this network to provide ultimate privacy. And I'm guessing this is all anonymized using the same fundamental ideas of cryptography uh, that are behind some of the uh, technologies we think about, like Ethereum uh, and Bitcoin. It actually is, is interestingly using something that's a little bit different because Hopper provides this transport level of privacy. So Hopper does not really deal with the on-chain privacy. There's great teams working on that, right? So there is not just a Zcash currency, but there's also teams like, you know, Aztec and Metro Labs and Railgun that provide uh, privacy on top of existing projects like Ethereum. And that's real great. Um, but, you know, data still needs to get from your wallet to some node. And that is the part that Hopper protects. So Hopper is, that's why we call it sometimes the layer zero. Then there's the, this blockchain on top of it. And on top of the blockchain, there might be further layer two scaling solutions in addition to that. So this is a transport layer that sits beneath the application layer. Exactly. So it is a transport layer. Hopper provides a transport layer for all sorts of Web3 applications that sits beneath any sort of application that is, is on top of it. Yes. All right, Sebastian, I've officially gotten way too far over my skis on the technology, and I'm sure I'm going to goof something up if I keep trying to go deeper. So I'm going to shift things up here uh, and ask you a question that our intrepid producer, Elaine Lee, uh, spotted at the beginning of this conversation. Tell us about the yellow dots on the mountain behind you and why they match your shirt. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, the mountains that you see behind me um, are pictures of Swiss mountains. All our releases are named after Swiss mountains. And you know, the yellow ball is actually the, the hopper ball that is, uh, can be used to hide or selectively disclose information, just like the hopper protocol, right? Something that gives you privacy is not just about hiding something, it can also be about selectively disclosing information. So to highlight what that is, we have the yellow hopper ball um, on some of our materials. It's also the same size and shape as the patch on your shirt. That is true. You see a lot of round balls in our materials, uh, visualizing how data packets are, you know, hopping around the network, because that's what Hopper is about, hopping data packets to provide privacy for the users. Sebastian, this has been a fascinating conversation, broad and deep in the technology, as well as the finance and infrastructure components. Final thoughts, key takeaways from this conversation that you'd like to leave our viewers with. Yeah, so for me, maybe one thing uh, to, to leave here is Privacy is a fundamental requirement for resilient infrastructure. Decentralization is great, but without privacy, we can only get so far. So this is, uh, you know, maybe one take home message for you. Um, think about how you can improve privacy in the digital era, because that is one thing that will grow over the next years. Sebastian, such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Would love to. Thanks for having me, Ash, and thanks for these very deep and insightful questions that you asked here. Sebastian Berg with Hopper, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for watching, everybody. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film. We work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube. 
and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.